Welcome to Under the Skin from me, Russell Brand on Luminary. Coming up is Jocko Willink. You know who Jocko Willink is, don't you? Author, podcaster, retired naval officer who served in the SEALs, Navy SEALs. He's also co-founder, I guess, of Echelon or Echelon Front, a leadership consulting company where he teaches leadership principles, the ones that he learned on the battlefield to help others lead and win. Jocko's debut novel, Final Spin, is coming out this November. He's a pretty impressive and powerful male, dear um, Jocko Willink. It was a fascinating conversation. Did you enjoy it, Jen? Yeah, he's like the jujitsu guys. What do you mean, like the Gracies or whatever? Yeah. Physicalized males. Yeah, calm. Yeah. He's well calm. Yeah, the bit about um, not getting into confrontations, even if someone picks on him. Yeah, I don't imagine that Jocko Willink deals with a lot of daily bullying, <laughs> looking as he does <clears throat> like the very epitome of a tough soldier. Um. Jen, what do you think about my new way of wearing the headphones? Well, it's fine now. What was it before? Before it was... the band was on your forehead, like a... Like that? Yeah, it's a bit weird. Like Jack Grealish? Oh, I was watching him being interviewed after the thing. Why? Because <laughs> don't tell you why. <laughs> why were you watching, why? Jen? I was watching the game. Yeah? And then he was on because he did the cross. Because you did the course. And what about um, <laughs> Switzerland? Yeah, they're even better. Your beloved Swiss are much doing be well. Much better. Yeah, it's good, I isn't knew it? they were going to miss the last penalty. Did you? What, yeah. When it was Mbappe? Yeah. What else? Been on any dates? No. <clears throat> Why? I met up with ex-boyfriend. Why? To watch the Swiss game. Which one? Ollie. You met up with him? Yeah. How'd it go? Fine. Did the old fires burn bright? No. <laughs> what, what did the old fires did the old embers no. twinkle god i can really hear a lot of external noise now that i'm wearing these headphones it's mine. yeah i can hear like cars and stuff it's an airplane i think <laughs> it's awful all right should we what should we do should we do some listener shout outs yeah go on then press your color box <laughs> I can't remember which one it is. Oh, Jen, press, just press one guess. Guess and see if it's the right one. Oh, dear. Oh, Jen, that's absolutely beautiful. That's not the right one, is it? Okay. There you go. Listen to shout outs. Listen to shout outs now. First one. Love the banter, says Don Perry. I'm enjoying the podcast. Keep up the good work. Please consider being kinder to Jenny. It seems to me she's devoted a substantial part of her life to making you look good. A few kind <laughs> words might, might be appreciated, just a thought. You're right, Don. Don, you're a lovely guy. No. And you're doing well. Jenny, on the other hand, what wretchedness is this? What <laughs> fresh wretchedness are you presenting <laughs> us with now? Pressing the wrong button on the colour box like that. Yeah, they don't have... Um... Like, they're just colours. <laughs> well, just memorise the colours. They use a mnemonic device, right? For example, listener shout-outs, what's the colour for that? Yellow. Right. Just imagine that the listener shout-out is a bunch of shouting bananas and they're all shouting out... <laughs> That's a good mnemonic device. That'll work. A bunch of bananas shouting. <laughs> yeah, a bunch of bananas shouting, Jen. You'll never forget it again because they're yellow. Okay. Now, what colours the... Banter. Yeah, what colours the banter? Red. Right. Just imagine banter, 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 decanter. Imagine a decanter filled with red, red blood all oozing out. Of a... It could have been wine or something. 
It's not as evocative. It's better to use evocative imagery for mnemonic devices. <laughs> Yellow bananas. Yeah, very. Who's going to forget a shouting banana? <laughs> oh, like, God. You know, you'll always remember it. Uh, listen, this one is from Jack. I first listened to the Under the Skin podcast about a year ago. It was the clip of Elizabeth Gilbert on YouTube that inspired me to subscribe. Oh, that's better. What have you done? I've turned, turned myself down. Can you hear me? Yeah, more than enough. Can you hear you yourself, <laughs> you yourself turned up like... <laughs> It's like the voice of Satan. I could hear like cockroaches. Oh, I know why. <laughs> because your headphones are up higher than mine. Yeah, and also because you had it outside <laughs> to live, I could hear the cockroaches <laughs> crawling across your scalp. I could hear their leg, their legs landing on you. All the beasties and creatures that live on your corpse. Uh, I listened to, you know, your Elizabeth. <laughs> Don't turn it up again, Jen. Stay away from the colour box. I just want to say that what you discussed about the war with creativity having been fetishized and there's another way to change my life. I'm a musician, a poet, a filmmaker and a drug addict. 46 days into recovery. Well done, mate. And it was so inspiring to hear. We need more of that. More examples of people killing it in their creative field without killing themselves. It's a clip I regularly share with friends and something I listen to myself again and again. That is lovely. Nice work. Nice work. Oh, Jen, so much positivity in the world. Then there's you. Now, what about Jenny May Finn? Should we do... Do you want to listen to Jocko Willink right now? Yeah. Did you like him? Yeah, I did. He's his jaw muscly. He's got a very chiseled chin. But he's big and muscly. You'd like it if he was much more slender. Yeah. <laughs> if he'd been in a POW camp or if he just would lost a lot a of weight. A POW camp? Poor. <laughs> P.A. Dublin account, pa. He's been in a pa. Prisoners of war, Jen. Oh. camp. Paw camp. Oh, yeah, okay, that must be where they go, like little creatures to get their paws cleansed. <laughs> Paw. <laughs> you funny bloke. What? Why'd you keep calling me a guy today? Did I call you it before? You said women and then you said person to me. <laughs> when you came in? They want to take any risks. We're stomping about in them jack boots. You for. liked them before when you were less tired. They're great. They're Thanks. a great boot. Thanks. You think my tiredness causes me to dislike boots? Just anything that exists and makes noise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. I get so tired, man. I'm shattered. I've got to do something. Go, You're go, really go tired in this podcast. Your voice is a different tone. Am I? In this one with Jocko Willing? Yeah. It was after Shakespeare. Oh, no. Yeah, I was knackered, man. Y your voice gets deeper. I prefer that. Okay. Perhaps I should be tired uh, more often. No. <laughs> Don't be tired, I'm too irritable. Right, let's listen to Jocko Willink. He was a, there's, there's some amazing aspects to this conversation. He's, when he talks about leadership, when he talks about transferring the mindset of, um, you know, combat into the real world. He's a guy that I guess is pretty unshakable. Let's listen to the powerful Jocko Willink. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire are the ideas that define our time, the history we are told. And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Jocko, thank you for joining me on Under the Skin. I'm so flattered to have you on. Well, I'm 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 flattered to be here. The thing I wanted to talk to you about most is leadership. I'm always fascinated to get the perspective of people that have um, served in the military, and, and particularly with someone as a career 
as impressive as yours to have served with such distinction in combat in st- such um well like i suppose you'd call them in you'd call them um within sort of centers of excellence such as the seals i've been i wonder how the skill set that you acquire there transposes to to civilian life and and in particular around leadership and and is the sort of the commonly understood civilian trope that many people that have lived lives of service find um civilian life difficult and somehow thin and lacking in purpose is that a sort of a, a fair analysis you know i i can't really say i found that i've had a good time in the civilian world as well I mean, look, you you do you are doing something when you're in the military. That's there's a, there's a lot of, there's a heavy consequence behind what you're doing. You know, people's lives are at stake, and it's most civilian jobs don't have that. So there is there's definitely a bond that you have with the people you work with that's very strong because you're going through very tough circumstances together. And I think maybe people might get. Um, when you leave that environment, it can be hard. And what I always, the advice that I give to people is when you leave that environment, you've got to find a new mission, right? You got to figure out what you're going to do now, because this mission of what you've been focused on for so long, and you've, you've been focused on it alongside other people that are also focused on it. And all of a sudden, one day you retire, like I did one day, I cleaned out my locker and put my stuff in my van and drove home. And that was that. And I had to find a new mission. And so I think it's important that people figure out what they're going to do next and then they go do it. Was there a period of grief when you transitioned from a life where you must have been incredibly engaged, rewarded, where you must have had incredible status, a sense of purpose, feeling like you're connected to like global issues? Was there a period of transition where you felt kind of bereft of meaning or were you able or did you have a plan when you were decommissioned or left or whatever the correct word is? Yeah, I, I had a plan. And I, well, I shouldn't say that I fell into a plan is more more than anything else. I fell into a plan. And I, I basically a few months before I retired, um, I knew the I knew the CEO of a company who asked me to go and talk to his talk to his executives about leadership. And I went and did that. This was probably six months before I retired. And when I got done talking to his executives about leadership, he said, I want you to talk to everybody in my company, every division I have about leadership. And I said, well, you know, I'm retiring and I had opened a a jujitsu gym and I live in San Diego. I was going to train jujitsu and hang out with my kids and not work anymore. (laughs) So I said, well, you know, hey, I'm going to I'm going to I'm retiring from this kind of stuff. And he said, well, I'll I'll give you money. And I said, well, okay, maybe. And then he said, "I'll, I'll give you some decent amount of money. And I said, "Okay, cool, let's do it. So I, I started talking to the various divisions that he had in his company around the country. And one of those divisional meetings that I was presenting about leadership at, the CEO of the parent company that owned his company was there. And when I got done, that CEO came up to me and said, I want you to come and talk to all my CEOs of all the companies I own about leadership. And he owned about 45 or 50 companies at the time. And so I went and did that. And then from there, it just kind of, snowballed into uh, a whole nother life with books and podcasts and everything else. So I, as much as I might talk about the, the good, the good idea of having a good plan, I, this plan kind of fell on me a little bit. 
this success that organically unfolded what how do you attribute that to yourself as a um, and uh, what skills do you think you had natively and what do you attribute to your training and how do you think those two things coalesce and support one another because of course even though you have a very distinguished and brilliant naval career you're not the only person that has that there are other people so i i wonder if you can break down for us why it was that as soon as you were introduced to this uh, sort of like you know financial or corporate community it was such an impactful message in your own understanding what was it about you as an individual plus your training and experience um well first of all i can tell you you know you're you're praising my military career a lot and i mean i had a very lucky military career i was in some great situations and and I'm a hard worker, but there's, there's definitely people, what I did in my military career is pales in comparison to what many people do on the battlefield and in leadership positions. So I, I don't want you to get too carried away with thinking I'm, I'm some kind of a, a hero or a war hero or anything like that, or, or even that I did anything with really an incredible amount of distinction. Um, I would say it was a strong average across the board. Uh, as far as how I ended up in this position, I think I, I think I understood the, the leadership principles. I had learned leadership principles along the way through my career in the SEAL teams. And I was always, I always kind of knew, I wasn't that really that good at anything else. I, so I wasn't the fastest guy. I wasn't the strongest guy. I wasn't the best shot. Uh, I wasn't the fastest swimmer. Uh, you know, I was, I was kind of like an average human in, in a, surrounded by a bunch of guys that are above average. And so really what I kind of focused on was, well, if I can take a step back and look around and figure out what we should do next as a team, that's going to be beneficial. And that's probably the best way that I can help. And that's kind of what I started doing almost as soon as I got in the SEAL teams is, hey, how can I take a step back, look around and figure out where we need to go next? And, and so leadership kind of is what I fell into and, and, and then once I fell into it, I got put into positions where I needed to utilize it. And I constantly thought to myself, what did I do wrong? What mistakes did I make? What could I do better? How could I, what, what approach could I take that could have given me a better outcome? And then when I got done with kind of the operational part of my military career, the last few years I was in, I ran the advanced SEAL training for the guys, for the platoons, the SEAL platoons that are getting ready to deploy overseas. And we put them through these phenomenal training scenarios that are extremely difficult. And whether they succeed or fail is almost solely based on the leadership inside the SEAL platoon. So I got to observe this almost as if a, a scientist would be observing a, a a laboratory experiment. I had a leadership laboratory and I got to put platoon after platoon after platoon and leader after leader after leader. And so as I taught these principles to them and I saw, hey, if they utilize these principles that I learned, then they're going to perform well. And then if they didn't, if they didn't properly utilize the principles I taught them, what I thought to myself was I must be teaching them in a method that they don't understand. So I need to really clarify and simplify what I'm saying. And eventually I got to a point where I think I was good at transmitting the message of what's important around leadership. And as that happened, by the time I entered, you know, like I said, by the time I went and talked to civilian companies, I actually had a pretty good base of, of how to lead and how to teach and communicate those leadership principles to people.
I understand. I understand. Thank you. So, firstly, the learning in extreme conditions with extreme consequences creates the necessity for the distillation of those principles in a, a very simple, easily communicated message. Another thing you talked about was analysis, continual analysis of what was working and what was not working. Another thing you mentioned there was perspective, stepping back and having an overview. There's two reasons why I was making sure to give props to your career. is One, because I feel like even if you don't know anything about me, just based on what I look like, you might think, oh, this is a person that doesn't respect the military because there are things like I'm quite an anti-establishment person. I have, I'm very sceptical about state power. I'm very sceptical about the agenda and incentives of state powers in foreign, ter- in foreign territories. But I am not cynical or sceptical about the sacrifices and attitude of people that are willing to put themselves in those perspectives or their incentives and ambitions and their core values. And so I'm always sort of like, I don't, I, it's in a sense, my attempt to preemptively address the idea that I might be a person that's sort of uh, anti-military because I look a bit like a hippie and I'm generally sort of somewhat peace oriented, but I'm very, very serious about values like honour, service, community, self-sacrifice. The other thing is because I'm like an entertainer and it's very easy and I have been seduced by individualism, narcissism, solipsism, these ideas that are not about operating as a member of a tribe. And I feel that our culture is somewhat grieving the loss of values that are perhaps more native to our condition, like belonging to a tribe, being a member of a community, operating together in pursuit of a common goal. I think these the, the same way that you were able to transpose your skill set from the military to the corporate world, I believe these this skill set could be transposed into the building of new social systems. And so like, I like to make sure that that distinction is understood. I've always, I, like, I've got friends I went to school with, went into the military and stuff, and I've always respected it. I've respected it mostly because of the self-sacrifice. I've, like, think, I think our culture celebrates, deifies, lionizes self. And I think that people that are willing to push past that, you know, regardless of their motives, I suppose, I personally admire and I'm sort of a bit intrigued by so that was like the sort of the reason I would like like you know like to make that sort of clear from the get-go yeah well just to kind of I guess give it back to you just based on the way that I look um it's also probably good to know that I was a super rebellious kid I grew up playing in hardcore bands and punk rock bands and just doing the most uh idiotic, crazy things. I was always completely anti-establishment. I have a rebellious streak that I have trouble subduing to this day. And so, you know, I guess the lesson for both of us is don't judge a book by its cover. How did you marshal that skill set into something that could enable you to flourish in an environment that required, I would have thought to a degree, discipline and a certain amount of conformity? How did you manage to make that transition? Yeah, it it is true. And you do and what I found is that w- with everything there, you, you have to be able to achieve some kind of balance and there's two sides to everything. And if you go extreme in any direction, you're probably going to end up in a bad way. And so while I kept my rebellious attitude, which I certainly did, which is actually a very positive thing. You know, when I have a platoon of my own, I don't want a bunch of robots in there. I want people that are going to say, Hey, Jocko, we don't like your plan. Hey, Jocko, I don't, I don't, I think there's a better way to do this. 
hey, I, I think we should go about this in a completely different way. That's who I want in my platoon. I want people to push back. I want people to be rebellious against me and, and, and push back against my ideas. And I certainly did that my whole career up my chain of command. Now, does this mean I was disrespectful? No, because if you're disrespectful people, if you don't treat people with respect, they're not going to listen to your ideas. But if you if you build a relationship with them and you treat them with respect and you listen to what they have to say, well, then there's a pretty good chance that they're going to listen to what you have to say. And so I just I think I just had to find a balance in 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 my attitude and and tone down some of that rebelliousness. And and what I found is that by toning down the rebelliousness, you could actually have more impact. You could actually have actual influence as opposed to just being someone that's a contrarian and telling, telling the boss, I don't, I don't like your idea. That doesn't help, doesn't get you anywhere. How did you, how did you learn that? I, I think basically trial and error. <laughs> You know, you treat people bad. They don't, you know, if I don't listen to what you have to say, you're not going to listen to what I have to say. If you don't treat me with respect, if I don't treat you with respect, you're not going to treat me with respect. If I don't put trust in what you're, if I don't put trust in you, you're not going to trust me. So I think just trial and error over time, it is, you know, look, I had a very nice benefit of being in an organization where you're constantly with a group of people. They all have different attitudes and different agendas and they all have egos. And so you're in this group where you kind of have to sort through things. And on top of having to sort through things, you generally have some kind of a task at hand, whether it's a training mission, even if it's something as simple as moving your gear from one location to another location, you're constantly doing something. You're constantly having to work within this group of, of other human beings and, and so I was very lucky that I was constantly in these situations where I had to contend with all these, all these other people and all these other egos. And over time, you know, you, you, you let your ego conflict with someone else's ego enough, you realize that we're not actually making any progress. And if you do that with someone that's above you in the chain of command, well, then they're not going to listen to anything that you say. And they might even take punitive actions against you. But if you learn that, oh, if I can, if I can subordinate my ego a little bit, and formulate some kind of a relationship with this other person, their ego will actually decline and they'll start to listen to what I have to say. So I think that over time through trial and error, I realized that being a hard-headed um, you know, person that just wants to do things my own way, I, it's just not an effective plan. So you have to conquer your own ego to operate within that group. I know that you talk uh, somewhat about culture and politics what do you observe about a culture that in my view at least brings ego individualism and self-infatuation to the forefront what type of environments do you think that generates for us and how do you think that the lessons that you're describing and outlining could be applied in, in that context, in a social context, more broad than a corporate one or a military one? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think the, the, the direction that you're heading with that question is, is, is pretty obvious, right? If you have a group of people or you have a leader of, of a group of people and no one on either side wants to say, you know what, actually, you know, Russell, I, I think I was wrong about this idea of how I wanted to go about this. I think your idea might be better. Why don't we use your idea instead? we don't have anybody that does that anymore. Uh, all we do is we kind of hunker down and attack each other. 
And what's interesting about egos is the more your ego, more someone's ego gets attacked, the more defensive they get. Uh, uh, defensive or ego is like, uh, react, you know what reactive armor is? Have you ever heard that term before? No. Reactive armor is armor that when when a projectile hits it, it actually explodes back at the back at the projectile that's hitting it. Uh, and that's kind of what your ego is like. When your ego gets attacked, you 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 flex your ego and you go harder at the person. You 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 strengthen your your position. You become more defensive. And so I think over time, you know, and and, and I'm sure that you're right. That look, if you're going to become a political person, you have to have some level of ego driving you, thinking, hey, you know what? I can do this job. I should be leading. Okay, and that's okay because ego is not a totally negative thing. And and if it wasn't for ego, you wouldn't be sitting here interviewing me. You wouldn't have had the success that you've had in your career. So you have to have some level of ego to say, oh, you know what, I'm, I mean, clearly you prepared for this to talk to me today. You did a little bit of research. You, you, you looked at some books or you, you know, your ego said, you know what, I'm not going to look like I'm not prepared to talk to this guy, you know, and I'm not going to let people see me. You have a, a certain amount of pride in doing a good job. So that's, that's cool. It's just that, as you mentioned, if we let our ego start to get out of control and all of a sudden, that's the only type of people that are in this particular uh, uh, career path is people that are egomaniacs, it becomes a problem. So I think ego is driving a lot of de divisiveness in the world right now. And, and people don't want to listen to what someone else says. They don't want to hear out someone else's ideas. And they certainly don't want to admit that maybe the idea that they have isn't, isn't perfect. Jocko, how do you align what seem to me at least the way that I would frame them uh, as spiritual values such as you know ca camaraderie which is kind of just like love compassion and cooperation really and a willingness to cede uh, supremacy to be a member of a team I, like these are sort of uh, values that could be perceived as spiritual values though I, I recognize that often you emphasize the pragmatic aspect of them how do you and spirituality has to be pragmatic otherwise like any system it won't work I suppose but like how do you align that with some of the goals and objectives uh, around say the military or the corporate world which often utilised for aims and ends that might conflict with what I would regard as the source of many of those spiritual values just broadly ideas such as you know unity oneness kindness you know whether that's in a corporate context or you know more obviously a military one how do you sublimate the, the contradiction there of spiritual values and sometimes quite materialistic or even you know plainly violent and i mean both in a corporate and militaristic sense violent ends and practices yeah well once again i think you you've got to find that there's going to be some level of balance and things have to be balanced out um, you know, if you, and I work with tons of businesses, um, you know, massive businesses that, that employ thousands and tens of thousands, and in some cases, hundreds of thousands of people. And so for them, in many cases, when they're making decisions, the livelihoods of thousands and thousands of people is based on the leader's decisions that they take a company, the direction that they take that company. And, and I think this is, you know, I, I've said a few times, and it's something that I believe if you're doing the right things for the right reasons, you're going to win in the end. And I've never said this part before, but you just made me think of it. If you're doing the wrong things for the wrong reasons, in the end, you're going to lose. That's what I believe. If you're, if you're running a company and what you're trying to do is, 
you know, make the most, the most profit you can possibly make. And you don't care who you step on to do that. And you don't care what it does to the consumers and you don't care what it does to the environment. Eventually that's going to come back and, and you won't be successful. Same thing in any type of uh, in military or, or nation state. If you're trying to do something benevolent and that's what, that's where your heart is at, you will succeed in what you're trying to do. If you're, what you're trying to do is nefarious and you're trying to impose your will on other people over time you're eventually going to lose because the challenge that i see there is that you know it sounds to me that you undertook a personal journey from a place where you may have been like a lot of young people lost directionless i wouldn't like to speculate on the familial conditions that lead to that but you know there's often a pattern around that and you know, find yourself achieving personal excellence within the, the military, you know, although you have qualified that and I accept your qualification. How could I not? I don't know enough about it. But like that is happening within a context like and this is, again, just my opinion. And I want to be respectful of any protocols that may exist when talking to someone that's been in the services but say like you know if you've served in Iraq and then retrospectively we find out that the reasons for that conflict were manipulated do you t- sort of take a view that at the top level military action is undertaken with information that can never be shared with the public fully and that there are sort of reasons that if people understood them they would back action and conflict in the middle east that happens generally under sort of successive you know administrations or do you feel more that often the intentions and agenda of superpowers like the United States or former colonial powers like my country are ultimately, you know, to, to use your phrase, doing the wrong thing for the wrong reasons f- to fulfill the ends and goals of a certain section of the population and not especially, um, you know, humanitarian, philanthropic or, and often, you know, just downright wrong. Yeah, so I, I think probably you could look at, you know, a country like England or a country like America, and you could probably do a pretty good comparison to, you know, take yourself or, or myself as a, as a young person that's growing up. And when you're young, you're immature, and maybe you're having some short term goals, and you're trying to look out for yourself. And but as you get more established, and you grow up and you mature, you, you start to take a different viewpoint and, and you you get to a position in life where you can be a little bit, where you can be more, uh, where you can do more good for in a broader sense. So I think that both, you know, you know, we talked about your country and my country, England and America. I think obviously, if you look at the past of uh, the histories of America and of England, there's certainly things that in in both of our histories that would that 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 are that are sickening. And again, I think if you know, someone was following you around with a video camera when you were 19 years old, they might find some things. I know they'd find some things I did. They'd say, well, what is this guy thinking? Who's he, what is his problem? So I think there's some of that, you know, we have to, we have to accept the fact that countries are going to grow and mature. And, and um, so, so I think that's part of it. I'm not quite sure. I, I fully understood your question about whether, did you ask me whether whether certain things should be kept from the public 
in order is it was that the question that was part of it right because what i was sort of saying is i was like approaching like because for in, in my opinion I, I take your point and your analogy about that the, the maturation of a nation might see selfish objectives say put aside in favor of higher goals and ideals but in my analysis jocko the reason that you know that england you know any sort of major nation operates in the way it does and perhaps you could even argue the construction of a nation is required in order to corral a large group of people together in order to pursue the goals and aims of an elite within that population utilizing our indigenous tribal feelings which my guess would be mobilize you know military life and what in my guess would be make it feel so fulfilling and real to have a common purpose a shared purpose it must align with our origins to feel that we're part of a group that our survival is dependent on one another for thousands and thousands hundreds of thousands of years we lived in accordance with those principles so when we find ourselves in alignment with them whether it's as a team or as you know perhaps most vividly i would guess as part of a military unit, we resonate from an evolutionary perspective, strong bells ring loud, you know. But I feel that the level of a nation where there is centralized power in pursuit of goals that are primarily uh, being pursued in order to fulfill the ends and aims of a small set of institutions and groups, that stories are told in order to wrangle larger groups of people in a line, you know. So. I don't just feel like that, say, militaristic campaigns abroad are sort of sometimes questionable. I feel that possibly the whole idea of a nation state is no longer appropriate. People should be empowered to live their own lives, run their own communities with centralized power only when necessary. And, you know, even deciding what is deemed necessary would be a cause of some debate and conflict and I just added the caveat Jocko of the idea of maybe there's stuff we don't know about because I suppose if it came to it and someone said listen if we don't do this stuff then you're going to have these people on your door do you want you know for basically the Jack Nicholson speech in a few good men or the speech at the end of network where someone goes do you know how this stuff really works if we don't do this then this is going to happen and when you know when the conversation gets taken there i'm like oh bloody hell jesus you know and you start to have to reflect you know so i guess i was just adding that but i guess i'm sort of saying are you in a way still patriotic do you still believe in those goals do you think that there's stuff that needs getting done that you can't discuss on a broad public level or do you still from that place of rebellion feel at odds with the agenda of powerful institutions, businesses, nations. Yeah, so I, I think there's a, there's there's truth to both those, right? And I think that they, well, I guess unfortunately, sometimes those things synchronize, and that's that's where we can oftentimes end up with a war. Because certainly, if you think that there's not some corporate leader of a defense company that knows that the munitions that get expended during a war are going to line the pockets for generational wealth for his family. Like, uh, yeah, that's, that's human nature. People are going to do that. There's, there's no doubt. Um, and so, yes, I think that happens. I think that you have those forces which are moving in one direction. You also have people that are on the other side that are saying, look, no matter what, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be doing this. And so in some, in some, way those two forces balance themselves out. The same thing with a, with a hawkish war mentality. You have some people that are thinking, hey, we need to do something about this. We need to do something about this. And there's other people that are saying, hey, I'm not sending my kid over there to do something about this. And, and you know, through the course of 
discussion and, and, and debate, some kind of decision eventually gets made and we either do or we don't do. I mean, I, I remember I was one, one particular case that, that usually I think about from this perspective is in 1993, when the Rwandan genocide, it was actually 1994 when the Rwandan genocide was taking place. I was actually, I was in the SEAL teams and I was off the coast of Rwanda and we were, we were prepared and planning to go in and stop this genocide. And as you know, there was 800,000 people killed, 800,000 Tutsis killed in about a hundred days, which was an extreme, and, and most of it was done with machetes. Most of it was done, you know, uh, up close and personal. And we didn't go, we didn't do anything. So, so there's 800,000 people that were killed. We didn't do anything. And one of the main reasons in my estimation that we didn't do anything was the year prior was when Black Hawk Down had happened, which was this battle in Somalia and Americans were killed and, you know, helicopters were shot down and it was a big black eye on, 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 on sort of America and our military, even though the troops on the ground, as you mentioned, were incredibly heroic from a, from a, from a nation state perspective, it wasn't exactly a good look. What are we sacrificing these young American soldiers for, for some random, you know, bad guy in, in Somalia? Why are we concerned about that? So there's a similar thing that I think that's, that was part of what drove this decision in Rwanda to have, to allow 800,000 people to be, to be murdered. And I don't know what the right answer is, Russell. I, I don't know. I know that I was there and I knew that we were hearing about what was happening. And I thought to myself, I, I was thinking we should go in there. We should go in there. That's what I was thinking. I was like, hey, look, we should go in there and stop this. And, and at the same time, you know, if, if we had gone in there and, and Americans had been killed, I promise you go talk to those, the parents of those kids and say, hey, your kid was killed to defend these, these you know, people in a foreign country that really present no threat to our, to our national interests at all. And, and your son is dead. So there's, there's always two sides to every story. And this is why, I mean, I think when people ask me these questions about going to war, not going to war, we, we really have, we, I don't think we do a good job of weighing out the cost of war. And look, when you go to war, you have to be willing to kill people. And, and, and the hard part about that is you're not just going to kill the enemy. That doesn't happen in war. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen in war where you go in and you say, yep, we're going to be, we have the perfect, not just smart bombs, but brilliant bombs that are only going to kill the bad guys. It doesn't happen. It's impossible. You get into a city, there's civilians in the city, you're shooting machine guns in a city, innocent people are going to die. And if you are not willing to do that, and if you don't understand that that's going to happen, then you're not ready to go to war. And obviously it's the same thing on the other front. If you go to war and you think you're not going to lose anybody because for, for whatever fantasy reason that you have, you think you can go to war and that none of your people are going to be killed. It's just, it's, it's a fantasy. It's, it's, it's naive. So we oftentimes, I think we, we get this idea that, well, we're not going to really kill any, we'll only kill bad guys and we won't lose anyone. So this seems like a pretty good plan. And I don't think we do a very good job of weighing that out. That's pretty cool. Hey, what about, um, you know, you said there, 
Jocko near the beginning that you know it's human nature for the people with the munitions interest to think this is going to be profitable and create you know generational wealth but of course it's also human nature to be self-sacrificing to be willing to put yourself at personal risk as a result of a set of ideals that, that won't directly benefit you do you not think it's the duty of a culture to promote the higher ideals the higher aspects of our nature obviously for someone who's put yourself in the positions you've put yourself in you must have a relative comfort or willingness to participate in violence you know and this is part of human nature me of my background in many ways could hardly be more different from your own other than it sounds like there was like troubled as adolescence but i went the way of sort of drugs and showing off and that kind of stuff and military and prison have always been my sort of two biggest fears in ways even though i'm sure i got a lot from either of them in, in, in some respects but even in spite of these obvious and obvious and vivid differences like as a a beginner and blue belt in jujitsu i recognize that there's sort of like energy in me that is sort of it's not like it's enjoyable it's be yeah it's enjoyable to express it's it, i like the feeling of conflict and being able to express it in a safe environment i like the opportunity to deal with fear and and uh, the, the feeling of victory and the targets that are set and the feeling something come off and all of that. Now, like you know, I've experienced it in a sort of in the realm of the hobby. You've experienced it in the realm of you know sort of conflict and high stakes. So, what kind of emotional relationship do you have with violence, and how has it changed? And what do you and how do you relate to it from someone that's operating in the realm where I, where I'm at? Well, to go back to the opening of that that question, you, you mentioned promoting kind of the the benevolent type attitudes, and, and don't we have a duty to do that? And I th I think, quite frankly, I think we do do that. And and if you know, people sometimes ask me about what's a hero, and and a hero to me, look, there's a hero to me is is encompasses the the term that you used of of self sacrifice, right? There's no one that says, oh, this guy worked all these years and he made a bunch of money and now he's just taking care of himself. What a hero. No one says that. No one says that. They say, oh, this person worked hard and they, and now they've donated all this money and they've built schools and hospitals. What a hero, what a heroic attitude. So, and it's the same thing in the military, somebody that does something so that, so that they can get a promotion that, that no one, no one looks at that person as a hero. They think of them as a jerk. So uh, you're right that there is an inherent there is an inherent knowledge that someone that is going to do something for the good of the group is elevated and we hold them up on a pedestal as we should. Uh, as far as my relationship with violence, I think I just view violence as uh, maybe, maybe I see it as something that is a little bit more connected and a little bit more of a reality of, uh, in the world that violence is a thing that happens. And even if, in fact, I got to ask a question uh, on my podcast a, a while back, someone said, listen, I, I, you're always telling us to train jujitsu and I appreciate it, but here's the thing. I just don't like to fight. I really don't like to fight. I don't want to fight. And do I really have to do jujitsu if I'm going to be on the path? And, and I answered him and said, you know, listen, if you don't want to fight, you're even more the person that should be doing jujitsu because you're the person that is going to need it. And you're the person that if you have it, you're not going to have to fight because you have that, that confidence and control. And if it does occur, you'll be able to handle yourself. So I think there's a little bit of that. I'd say that's my relationship with, with violence is that it's a reality of life. 
And I, I probably understand that the, the barrier to violence, I see the barrier to violence as being pretty thin in the world, in, in, in physical altercations between two human beings, in nation state altercations that end up in war. I think just from my experiences, I see that, you know, I'm sure some people would, they think violence is a huge barrier between like, look, look, we're just not going to fight. And I think, I think, well, you know, it's, it's not that the barrier isn't that thick. Yeah, like it's present. Now, even as a person that's not engaged in a great deal of violence, other than getting, you know, punched in the face a few times and stuff, like I feel it's, presence and i think yeah it's just the other side of a membrane but i figure you gotta have like a, a different type of relationship with it like i recognize what you're saying intellectually from that analytical leadership position of surveying the landscape but what about jocko from like uh what happens to you anatomically when you feel like violence is coming i'm gonna do violence how do you control that feeling even if it's in a sort of a safe bounded position like on the mat and how does that compare to you know this is off the chain type violence you know, and, and you know surely then there's still a need for discipline how do you control those forces that are bigger than any individual forces that have carried evolution forward like an ocean like sexuality that we ride on that are bigger than than individuals what happens when you have to engage with those powers and those powers that can be very are by their nature dangerous yeah i, th I think the real simple answer to that is is, is uh with a with a lack of with a lack of emotion right so there's no this excitement, this idea of, yes, here we go, of being excited is, is gone. <laughs> and it's more of a job than anything else. And uh, uh, learning to detach and learning to detach is something that I, I wrote about in, in, in my last book about leadership. Learning to detach was a hugely important part of me progressing as a human being, and certainly from a leadership perspective, learning to take a step back and detach and breathe and look around. Those were the, that was the first, re, that was my very first SEAL platoon. I figured that out. I figured out that if I get caught up in what's happening, if I get caught up in shooting my weapon, if I get caught up in, in, you know, controlling prisoners, if I'm caught up in any of that stuff, I'm not really understanding what's happening. I can't see what's happening and I'm not going to make good decisions. If I take a step back I put my weapon at high port, which means I point my weapon at the ceiling. So I'm not doing this. I'm doing this. I'm pointing my weapon at the ceiling and I'm looking around. That is a superpower. And so I think with regard to violence, you know, it, for me, it's okay. I need to make sure that I'm always detached. And I, at this point in my life, I, I'm good at remaining detached during violence. When gunfights are happening, I'm looking around, I'm making sure I'm paying attention, I'm figuring out what our next move is going to be, and I'm not wrapped up in violence in that way. And I, I guess this might this might be a stretch, but you know, you mentioned something about, you know, with 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 sex, you get this emotional thing. And I, I guess if you imagine a, a prostitute who does that for a living, is probably not super emotional when they're engaging in the act of sex for money and I, I think that's probably a good thing for their for their mental health and i'd say that's a, a similar thing for uh someone that's in the military that you don't want to get wrapped up in the emotions of the situation and yeah i, I appreciate what you're saying it has to be become like in a sense from a spiritual perspective i.e with meditation you would say you have to remain in the awareness thoughts will come 
stimulation will come, sensation will come. Can you remain with the awareness, not be seduced or drawn into the stimulant, not be overwhelmed by it? Now, that's hard enough, I think, when it's just me observing my own thoughts or me dealing with the emotions of being in a family or, you know, whatever everyday challenges I face, some of which seem pretty bloody radical, actually. But, like, when it's actual... um, when it's actual sort of, I suppose in a way, if it's a, your life is in danger and other people's lives are in danger, does it sort of create a sort of a mental clarity in you? There's definitely a mental clarity, but also, I mean, it, it can freak guys out. <laughs> I mean, I've seen guys lock up. I've seen guys not want to go anywhere. I've seen guys freeze in those moments and you have to kind of shake them out of it. So it does provide a clarity, but it's something you have to, you have to work on. And, you know, I've never been, I, I, I owe Sam Harris uh, uh, a couple weeks on his on his meditation app. I still haven't done it. He's been pestering me about it for a while, and I apologize to Sam. But I know that's the goal of of meditation, and it takes practice to get to that point. And I think it's the same thing with getting some control of your emotions in dynamic situations. It takes a little bit of practice, and it takes some awareness. And there's even, for lack of a better word. You know, people often look, they ask me questions like, when was the moment in time? And a lot of, often, often I don't have a moment in time where I realize this or I realize that, but that idea of detachment was an absolute moment in time for me. I realized what I did and I realized that that was a tool that I needed to take advantage of from then on. And I did. And I, th- I think that's, a, a, there's a, there's an element of luck in there, right? There's an element of luck that I happened to make. I happened to do something that allowed me to be detached. And because I saw it, it opened up my eyes a lot. And I, when I was running that SEAL training, I tried to impose that moment of luck on guys where I'd pull them back a little bit and say, hey, look around, look what you can see. And, and they would start to open their eyes more. No one ever pulled me back and showed me what to look at. I got lucky that I found it. But I think it's something that we, we need to work on. And, and, I, and, I, and I assume that's one of the goals of meditation is that you're not getting wrapped up in your emotions and, and letting your thoughts drive you where you're going. You're taking a step back and looking around and, and seeing the best way to move forward. Yes. I, like I, Sam, I went on his podcast one time and he was actually really kind to me, sorted out like he made a connection for me with the people that did my, like I did my podcast with, as a matter of fact, and he introduced me to Heron Gracie. So he's like, even in just one sort of exchange, he was like a really valuable person, you know, added value to my life, certainly. And, and I feel like, um, you know, even I believe in God, I'm pretty like, you know, I've sort of plain about that and sam is kind of an atheistic kind of spiritual guy and um and but yeah what you're saying about awareness trying to achieve and remain in a place it's like when you describe that moment of uh you know of awareness it sounds sort of like epiphany that something came and it was just there and from that moment that you were able to teach other people that um so Jocko, then what are some very simple ideas about leadership that are applicable if you're like uh, in a position of some like I'm a member of like for example groups of addicts and alcoholics and sometimes in there they're very democratic systems everyone's got a voice like people in positions of leadership are understood to be in positions of service not in positions of domination and when conflict comes up it's really interesting to see what kind of um, ideas dominate. I'm also in a position in a family where I'm a father of two young children, which is intense and challenging. How do you like, um, 
use these ideas in a kind of uh, general and ubiquitous way? Yeah, that was one of the most surprising things when I retired from the military was that I, so I was institutionalized my entire life. I mean, I, I, I joined the Navy when I was 18 years old. I spent 20 years in there. So the only thing I really understood in the world, the only thing I did not, not, not understood, the only thing I knew was military. This is what, this is what we do. Now, I will say that there are, you know, there's the image that people have of what military leadership must be like, right? There, if you haven't been in the military, then what you see in a movie is some sergeant or some captain barking orders at people and the soldiers carrying on, and that must be what it's like. And and a real obvious question would be, well, how the heck is that going to work in, in a civilian environment? You can't get up there and bark orders at people and tell everyone what to do and expect them just to do it. Well, that's because that's a misconception that military leadership is like that. Now, are there some leaders in the military that, that do behave like that? Yes, there are. Are they considered good leaders? No, they're not. And one thing that's, one thing that's unfortunate in the, the American military is you're in a leadership position for about a year and a half or two years. So a year and a half or two years, you come in, you take over a platoon. You're in charge of this platoon. You start some training. You complete your training. You go on deployment overseas. You come back and it's been 18 months. So that's how long you were in charge for. So like when I was a young guy in a SEAL platoon, you get a bad boss, a guy that's a bad leader, a guy that's going to bark orders. It takes you a few months before you figure out like, hey, you know what? He's really like this. This is this guy is actually not a good leader. And then you think, well, what should we do? Should we do something about it? And then another few months passes by. And then you're on deployment. You're like, this guy's horrible. I hope we never have to work for this guy again. Then you get done and he goes and gets promoted. That's what happens. So that's why some of that, some of that, you know, dictatorial or tyrannical leadership can survive in the military because people aren't in the, 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 the troops will just wait him out. The troops will just be like, oh, he'll be gone. He'll be gone in four months. Don't worry about it anymore. In the civilian sector, that doesn't really happen as much. So it's, you, you have to be a little bit more conscious about the way you're behaving. But in the military, the good leaders, the good leaders are the ones that are going to listen to what the team has to say. The good leaders, and look, this, this, I know this sounds crazy, but like I would go out on operations where I'm the ground force commander, the, old, the overall guy in charge of an assault of two or three buildings with multiple people out there, multiple platoons taking down buildings, and I'm in charge of this whole thing. And the only thing I would say during that operation would be execute, execute, execute. I would just say, go. And then I would be able to sit back and the team would know what to do and they would make decisions and they would make things happen and they would handle problems and they would get all that done without me saying a word. And that's the ideal. That's what, that's what actually I'm, I'm shooting for all the time. And it's the same thing in any organization. It, it, when an organization truly understands what their mission is and what their purpose is, the leader doesn't have to say a lot. The leader definitely doesn't have to bark orders. So we, you want to talk about how, what, you know, what does good leadership look, look like inside of a family? Well, it's the same thing that good leadership looks like in a SEAL platoon. You listen to what other people have to say. You, you, you know what? If, if, you, if they come up with a plan and that plan is a viable plan, let's use your plan. Russell, let's, yeah, hey, Russell, how do, you want to, how do you want to do this project? You come up with a plan. It's a viable plan. Let's do it your way. Sounds good. That's what I'm looking to do. I'm always looking to utilize my subordinates plan or utilize my subordinates methodology. I'm looking to utilize my, you got, you got two kids. You think like, Oh, this is really, I got four kids, Russell. I got four, three girls, one boy. If I can say, 
hey, how do you want to do this? And they come up with a plan. They are going to, they're going to enact that plan and execute that plan with, with much more vigor if it's their plan, if they have ownership of that plan. So regardless of the environment that you're in, if you as a leader are humble and you listen and you give ownership away and you, get, you empower people, you are going to be elevated. And what's weird about this, and we started off talking a little bit about ego, the hardest part of this is we have to overcome our own ego. Because there's part of me that if I think if Russell comes up with a plan and we go with his plan, even though I'm the boss, it's going to make me look weak. And I'm not going to allow that. So you know what, Russell? You know what? We're not using my, we're using my plan. We're using my plan. You be quiet and execute my plan. And I think in some twisted way, I think that makes me look strong. But the whole team knows that that's, they look at me and go, oh, yeah, he's, he's insecure. He's weak. He, he can't even let Russell step up because he's intimidated by Russell. It's like, so you can't do that. What you have to say is like, hey, you know what, Russell, your plan's better than mine. Let's go ahead and execute your plan. So that's the way this leadership idea transfers across any leadership domain. Hmm. So I understand. Well, kind of an open-heartedness, a compassion. One aspect of leadership you've talked about is kind of being communicative and open. But God, obviously, in a sort of a highly disciplined environment with high stakes like the military, there has to be a clear vision. There has to be a degree of consensus uh, and discipline. I'm sort of wondering what you think about sort of, I suppose you have to at some point establish what a vision is, like it, whether that's for a, a society or for a, a unit or a platoon or for a business. This is our vision. Do you want that? You have to, you, the leader, plus, I suppose, communicates the vision and then empowers people to pursue that, consensually pursue that vision together. Yes. And, and the most important part of that vision is we have to explain why we're doing what we're doing. So I can't just say, hey, we're going to assault this building. Go do it. I need to say, hey, listen, we're going to go assault this building. The reason why we're doing this is because there's an insurgent that's been utilizing this building to build bombs that have been used against American and coalition forces. We need to, we need to get this guy off the battlefield. This is why we're doing it. So, so people don't need to understand why they're doing it. You can't just expect, and it's the same thing in the corporate world. You can't just think, hey, we're going to build this product and sell it for as much money as we can. No, actually, what we're trying to do is we're trying to build this product. It's a very valuable product for the, for the customer that we have out there. There's a high demand signal for it. It's going to make people's lives easier, and it's going to be very beneficial to our customers. That's why we're doing this. Oh, and by the way, are we going to make money? Yes, we are going to make money. And what are we going to do with that money? Well, we're going to we're going to develop more products that are going to be even better for people. So people have to understand not just what they're doing, but why they're doing it. That's very interesting. I wonder how that functions in a time of kind of crisis, like you could it could be argued we are in with the kind of divisions that are emerging within the pandemic, the kind of cynicism and doubt about the agenda of pharmaceutical companies and government, the feelings of people that were supporters of Trump that now feel sort of abandoned and not catered for by a kind of a centrist, democratic, liberal left that don't seem often interested in the lives of ordinary working people i i and and a corporate culture that does seem like it's much more like that it might utilize that idea of purpose we're going to create this product that's going to make people's lives better but it seems like that the in your version the add-on was oh by the way we're going to make money it's going to be good for our lifestyle for me that's plainly the raison d'etre behind organizations so i should say like just take something like this um the athlete the naomi osaka i said i ain't doing them interviews no more the media makes me mentally ill 
and then the pressure that's on her because it's like, hold on a minute, you've signed these contracts, you've got to do these deals. It sort of exposes what it is really, what this what this really is. This is a business. If you want to be a tennis player, you do what you're told or that you're out. You know, and like, so what I would say is that the values that underwrite, often underwrite corporatism in my assessment, Jocko, are, you know, necessarily about profit. You take profit out of it, it's gone. The whole business structure evaporates. So in a sense, even though you might present to a team or a culture or a society, we're doing this because, you know, X, Y, Z. I mean, say if you were saying to like, you know, that those groups of, of uh, people that you were running, those platoons, we're doing this because we have to maintain hegemony so that the military industrial complex can continue to profit with the blood of young American lives. And you happen to be that, you know, like the people are like, well, hang on, I'm not doing that. You know, I feel like that there's so much beauty, so much power, will, ingenuity in people. And it's so frequently being harnessed to to use a word you've already used, nefarious ends, selfish ends, the, the, the lowest aspects of human nature, our lower values are being escalated, elevated, deified, and cultures are being built around them. And if you inadvertently, if a person like you that has a set of uh, principles, ideas, and sets of energy can be you know, mobilized to the, to, to, the, to the ends of the culture, then you may succeed within it. But that's almost an inadvertent consequence rather than the defining principle. Do you see what I mean? Like that, it, whether it's in corporatism or militarism, it seems to me that sometimes, well, I would say usually, the goals are not commensurate with the needs of ordinary people. Yeah, and what I'd say is that um, in both cases of what you described, there's there's an absolute overlap of the agendas, and there's points where the agendas become aligned. So, for instance, from the corporate side. Sure, there's people inside that corporation that they're solely driven by profit. And they're, you know, you look at the CEO of a big company and he wants to make the most amount of money. Well, he's also got people working for him that they want the company to make money too, because they're gonna, you know, they're they're gonna buy buy a house, they're gonna get they're gonna get their down payment together for their house, or they're going to send their kids through college. And on top of that, what they're doing is they're producing a you know, like uh, the healthcare companies, you know, I work with some, with some medical device companies, they're making a massive amount of money, a massive amount of money. And I work with some, I've worked with some medical device and pharmaceutical companies, they're making a massive, just an obscene amount of money. And you know what else they're doing? They are, they are literally saving people's lives or, or providing them with something that completely changes and 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 enables them to live a normal life. So sure, that corporate CEO could stand up and say, listen, here's what we're doing. We're going to build this product that we've got that's going to that's going to be able to keep people alive that normally would be dead in a year. It's going to keep them alive for 20 years. And we're going to make billions of dollars off of that. That's what we're going to do. They could say that, but there's an absolute alignment. Where they, where, where people inside that company, they, they are not just doing it for money. I mean, I've been, I've been to plenty of corporate events, corporate events where they bring people whose lives have been changed or saved through products have been created, and those people absolutely praise the companies that are making this money. So there is, there, there are two sides to this. Russell, but there are many times when these two, 
when these two sort of separate agendas, when you get high enough, they actually align. And from the military perspective, it's similar. Look, could could I give a speech to my platoon? Listen, we're going to do this operation tonight. And I just want you to know that every bit of ammunition you expend is going to line the pockets of these defense companies back in America. And I want you to feel good about that. I mean, I could say that. And that there, is, there is truth to that. Someone, every bullet that we shot, every grenade that we threw, that put money into the pocket of a company somewhere. That's 100% true. But also, when you're out there and you see the Iraqi civilians, you see the Iraqi civilians that are living under a complete regime of terror. And this is post-Saddam. This is when the insurgency was taking off. I fought in a place called Ramadi. Ramadi was had been overrun by insurgents. The insurgents were insurgents were subhuman in their behavior. They were torturing, they were raping, they were murdering, they were beheading, they skinned people alive. I mean, it was absolutely heinous. And so what we knew when we were going on an operation to capture or kill one of those individuals, we knew that we were doing something that was going to be beneficial to the local populace that we were amongst. So yes, you're right that there are scenarios and there are agendas that people have. And luckily, I think oftentimes there is a level of alignment with these agendas and we need to pay attention to that as well. Do you believe in God? Yeah. Oh, cool. Thanks. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. Yeah, it gives me a lot of peace, you know. Um, thank you. What about uh, what about the jujitsu, mate? Please, can you tell me a few things at the level of blue belt that will uh, be useful to me, please? So, are you at a point where you're relaxed yet? Sometimes I do a lot of my training because of like the COVID conditions with my teacher, who is like you know black belt. I'm somewhat relaxed. I'm somewhat relaxed with him when I roll with other people, particularly people actually around my level, where it is obviously more competitive and there's more at stake. Like the emotion comes in a little more then. Yeah, I mean, learning to relax is a huge, a huge piece. And I think when you overcome that next, that's sort of the next thing to be able to overcome is when you learn to relax. And, and I'm not saying you're not going to train hard. And I'm not saying that I don't, you know, I come off the mat dripping with sweat from physical exertion. But I can tell you that, you know, I come off the mat dripping with sweat from physical exertion after an hour, right? And you can't do anything at a at a uh, at an emotional level for an hour, you can't do that. You you have to be able to keep your emotions in check. So I, you know, I think that's the a big a big one is just learn to relax and have fun. And, and jujitsu was incredibly important for me in a, so many different ways. But the the biggest way that it was important to me is the way that it allowed me to see things that I don't think I would have seen had it not been for jujitsu. Jujitsu was sort of connected the dots between a bunch of different things going on in my life and the different things that were going on in my life actually were leadership and and combat and and jujitsu started jujitsu is the thing that allowed me to see that the maneuvers that you make on the battlefield and the maneuvers you make in jujitsu and the maneuvers you make in leadership are all the same and they they need to be the same so it opened my eyes a lot and i think when you start viewing the world through 
jujitsu, it, it makes everything a lot easier. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Relax. Do you feel fear very often? And what happens if you do feel fear? I, I don't I don't get a lot of fear. Um, there, there's there's two things that I'll tell you about fear. Number one, like on deployment, the fear of me getting killed was I didn't have it. And the reason I didn't have it is because I accepted it and and just knew that, hey, this is what I signed up for. And if I die, this is this is there's a chance I'm gonna die, and that's okay. And and once you overcome that, you're pretty good to go. There is another type of fear that I've had, and I had it for months on end, which was one of my guys getting wounded or killed. And every time we did an operation, every time the guys went out on an op, if I wasn't going with them, this 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 gnawing, this gnawing feeling of in my gut of fear that someone would get wounded or killed. That's something that it became ever present. And, and when I came home from deployment, it took about a month. I didn't even know I had it. But, but one day I woke up after I'd been home and I live in California. I live in San Diego, California, which is just ridiculously beautiful place. And after about a month of being home, one, one day I woke up and I just felt like a, I felt like a different, almost like a different person because I, I felt this lightness. I can't, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it, um, a, a, like a lightness a weight had been lifted and that's a very stereotypical thing to say, but I felt like a weight, a massive weight had been lifted off me. And I didn't really understand what, why I felt so good. And as I went through the day, hanging around with my kids, seeing them laugh and play. And at some point I realized, Oh, I'm not worried about any one of my guys getting wounded or killed because we're home. And that's just one of those things that I, I, I realize that burden that you carry is going to be, it's very heavy. And, 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 you know, I didn't bring all my guys home and that's a burden that that's never going to go away. And so the, the closest thing that I had to fear was always the grinding feeling in my gut that one of my guys was going to get wounded or killed or that another one of my guys was going to get wounded or killed. And I think what I had to do was compartmentalize it and 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 not let it drive my decision making process because when you're afraid you become hesitant when you become hesitant you become vulnerable when you become vulnerable you get crushed so there is a a level of taking that fear and and compartmentalizing it and putting it into a spot where you're not focused on it but you're actually focused on what you can control which is where you should be focused, focusing on the fact that a random bullet could hit a guy or a roadside bomb that we've done everything. We, we mitigated risk to the best of our ability. We've done every possible thing we can do. Let's focus on, let's focus on what we can change. Not on, not on chance. Yeah. You are not a neurotic guy. That is what I'm picking up that you do not spend a lot of time worrying about variables that are beyond your control. And whether it's like the, detachment from the emotional component of violence or a willingness to accept the kind of contradictions that might exist in any endeavor that involves a lot of individuals and interests and centralized forces and geopolitics and corporatism 
it don't seem like you are a person that allows that you you seem to be able to achieve a kind of an overview and a, a kind of a piece with that and for it sounds like that's a, a very applicable skill set do you recognize though that that's kind of uh not normal <laughs> uh i mean it, it seems like it's not normal maybe but i also think that the opposite the opposite attitude of making everything freak you out and getting wrapped around the axle and stuff, it becomes very obvious on, on, on social media, right? This is a, a place where a place where that sort of reactivity is rewarded by, by likes and retweets and whatever else it's going to be. So it's, it, maybe it's, maybe it's not considered normal today, but I'd say it's actually, more normal than we might think. And this is one benefit I have, you know, I, I do, I do um, end up in situations where I end up maybe talking about some political topics and I'll be talking about them with people that are sort of in those worlds. Right. I, I know I, I had a conversation with, with Ben Shapiro and he's, he's a super nice guy. Right. But he's at ground zero for political mayhem. And in his mind, there's a there all day long. He just re, he just reacts to people that are attacking him, and he's attacking people. That's where he lives. And I, I've had to explain to him and 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 many others. Hey, listen, I'm very lucky nowadays that I I have a leadership consulting company, and I travel around the country, and I work with company all different types of companies. The every literally every type of company that you can imagine. Like I mentioned, healthcare. We work with construction companies. We work with energy companies. We work with finance companies. We work with Wall Street. The whole we work with everyone, and and whether I'm in, you know, Nebraska talking to a bunch of linemen who are out like climbing poles in ice storms to fix, or, or whether I'm talking to a construction crew down in, in California or, or a construction crew out in Florida, or I'm in, in San Francisco talking to a tech company, the people, most people are what they're, what they're focused on is like, Hey, how can I do my job better? How can we create a better product? How can we, how can I take care of my team? They're not looking at social media, thinking about who they're, who they're going to attack. So even though it might seem, even though it might seem like I'm not normal because I don't dwell in the gutter of, of, of vile <laughs> hatred towards the people around me, I think there's probably more people like that than we recognize because people like that aren't vocal. They're not, they're not saying, hey, everyone just want to let you know that I took my daughter to her recital tonight and it went great. Like people aren't people and people aren't saying, I can't believe you took your daughter to a recital. You should have been doing something. Like, <laughs> people are trying, trying to live um, nice lives. And so I think it's, it's maybe a little more normal than it seems because I don't uh, dwell in those worlds where, where people are just constantly attacking each other and being rewarded for their attacks. Yeah, I get you. But I don't even just mean in terms of the sort of, getting involved in the external sort of a permutations of it online i mean in particular within my mental space you know i, I know that that place is a sort of a, it's a cesspool out there and i don't want anything to do with it and it's not real you know another thing i bet you your person if you're out and about something goes off i don't even mean altercations just violence you have a, your public spirited right if you see something i'm involved if you see something happening do you not have like i once see tom cruise do a, an interview and he says like if you're a scientologist if something goes off 
you got to get in there. When I watched that, I think a lot of people, it's one of those interviews where people were like with Tom Cruise, I like he's a bit extra. I've worked with Tom Cruise and I, I like the dude. And like, uh, like, uh, but I'm like that. If I see, now the difference perhaps between you and I is a lot of times I get myself involved in these situations, I might make it a little bit worse. You know, but I do have the, at least the public spirit of getting in there. You know, I don't stay within the trammels of this is my life, this isn't my business. I consider it my business. People are arguing, something's happening, like, you know, maybe a fight between a cab driver and a cyclist. I'm stepping in, baby. Maybe from a spiritual perspective rather than from a kind of paratrooper version. Me, I'm proposing some meditation and chanting rather than trying to induce some sort of arm lock or choke. But like, uh, I wonder if that's what you're like. Do you, do you step in and you're like, I'm, I'm intervening. When, 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 I was, when I was younger? Not even my... just the fight. I mean, like, I mean, to sort of, sort of like, this is my duty. Yeah, well, so this is my answer. When, when I was younger, I'd probably jump. I mean, I would. I would jump into those situations in a heartbeat. Now that I'm older and I recognize that Actually, if there's a fight between a, what'd you say, a cab driver and a cyclist, if there's a fight between a cab driver and a cyclist, I'm actually going, I'm going to absolutely monitor that situation. What is going to happen? Because as soon as you jump in, you're going to lose perspective. And, and now all of a sudden you might be the one, you know, if you stay out of it and they push each other around and then, hey, the one pushes the other, they yell, they flip each other off you realize they don't really want to fight. Okay, no harm. You didn't have to do anything. If you jump in there immediately, well, now all of a sudden, you, you know, one of them might have a knife. One of them might have a gun. One of them, you know, one of them might have a bad temp. What, we don't know what's going to happen, but as soon as you jump in there, you lose your perspective and you're no longer detached. So what I'm more than likely to do, and I, never mind more than likely, this is what I actually do in situations like this, is I'll, I'll take a step back, to, you know, remain inconspicuous, Watch it from the outside, because if all of a sudden the the uh, cab driver punches the other guy and mounts him and starts raining punches onto his head, well, now I am in a position where I can go and and you know put that guy, grab that guy, get him off, put him in a chokehold, put him to sleep, get the police around so we can get it handled to make sure no one gets killed. So I'm going to stay detached as much as possible in any of these situations. And this is, this is true. You know, I, I actually talked to my, my, my company echelon front, like a lot of things, I describe a lot of things as bar fights. Oh, that's a bar fight over there. If there's a bar fight, you should not get involved in that bar fight. Now, if it gets to a point where all of a sudden someone's going to get killed, you might have to step in there because we don't want to see anyone get killed. But if it's a bar fight and someone's going to get beat up and, and they're going to yell at each other and they're going to cause a problem, and they're going to break a table and they're going to throw a, throw a bottle of beer. Why are you going to get covered in beer? Why are you going to get involved in that situation when as soon as you step into it, you've lost that detachment and you've lost perspective? So for me, stepping in, for me, the best thing that I can do to make sure that that situation doesn't escalate to a point where, some, where it causes real damage to someone the best way to do that is not to step into it. It's actually to stay detached, take a step back. And by the way, other bystanders, I'm going to wait till Russell gets in there. You know, Russell, you're all amped up to gym. Maybe you can diffuse it. And if you diffuse it, that's great. I, I've still managed to stay detached. And by the way, if all of a sudden you start getting pushed around or both these guys turn on you or someone pulls out a knife on you, now I'm in a situation where I can provide more help. So direct involvement in conflict 
is, is not always the best place to be. It's usually from a leadership perspective, better to take a step back, look around and do an overall assessment of how you can help from a broader sense. That's beautiful. What if it's like just plain help required? Someone needs some help carrying something, something's up a tree. Simple. You're in there with the help all day long. Just compassion, kindness. And finally, finally, um, like what about because I started with very deep geopolitical stuff. Now I'm going into everyday (laughs) potential situations. What happens if someone provokes you? Like what happens if, you know, the simple things, road rage, people being aggressive or confrontational. I imagine there are certain non-verbal signals that you are giving off that prevent that thing, that kind of thing happening too frequently. But if it does happen, how do you respond to that? Uh, well, for a road rage incident, you know, if I if someone was yelling at me, what I do in a situation like that is I'd probably say, uh, hey, sorry, man. Didn't mean to. If it's, you know, if I accidentally bump into someone in a bar and they, they get hostile with me, I'll probably say, hey, man, sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Pete, can I buy you a beer? Um, what are the other examples you had? Yeah, they were just sort of like everyday potential confrontation. So you're not invested in that kind of stuff. I remember with like, you know, Hiron and Hena, like the neither of them have ever had a fight in the street ever in their lives you know for sort of obvious reasons and he talked me through a situation once where there was a confrontation and just like where he put his hand on somebody and he demonstrated it and it was just a hand on the shoulder you know but it the information was clear in the hand on the shoulder you know and um yeah so you're not you're not particularly provoked or invested in that because you're very very centered presumably from the amount of extremity yeah and and, you know anyone that's going to try they're usually they're usually provoking your ego you know um so i'm not really gonna let some person get me emotional about whatever they're whatever's going on you've got to figure they've had a rough day like if someone's that mad because you 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 cut them off in the car man what's going on in their world i don't know what's happened to their i don't know if they got a sick kid i don't know if they got fired from their job there's all kinds of situations that could be happening there's a there's a you know my, my life is pretty good there's there's a 98% chance that that person's having a much worse day than I, than I'm having. So I don't want to make their day any worse. Um, I'm sure there's some nonverbal signals that I give off too. I, I normally don't, I normally don't get, you know, accosted on the street. It's more likely <laughs> in, in a car that someone can't really tell, you know, uh, what I look like. And maybe they, maybe they might flip me off or something like that. And I'll, you know, say sorry and wave or whatever, but uh, we're looking to deescalate those situations. Nothing good is going to come out of them. It's lovely, and I thank you, Jocko, for this conversation. And I also like the way that it seems, to some degree at least, to be built around a willingness to let go of a individualistic and egoic perspective. The thing that interests me most is how culture might be better informed by a set of values that are built on service, kindness, selflessness, while recognizing that there are alternative stimuli in all of those areas, that there is always a temptation and attraction towards the ego to vent in, domination. Those kind of ideas are sort of attractive and I think are promoted culturally. And often when they're spiritually promoted, it can be a bit rootless, traditionless, not not earthed in a set of, um, that's for, for want of a better word, um, sort of masculine principles of high value at a time when, like, you know, you hear a lot about toxic masculinity, aspects that you might regard as masculine, even if it's not particularly, you know, or literally associated with the genders of male and female, I shall say, you know, like duty, 
service, honour, integrity. These seem to me to be very, very important ideas I'm interested in promoting and learning about. Yeah, well, from a strategic perspective, I, I agree with you. And, and it, it, from a strategic perspective, what I tried to do is I've written a bunch of kids books to, to address those and, and teach kids the kind of values that you're talking about. Uh, and they've been, they've been really successful. And the feedback that I get from those books is absolutely phenomenal to get letters from kids that say, uh, I did my first pull up or I got an A on the math test or I, I, I'm, I'm captain of the soccer team or whatever it is that they're going to say. It's because they're on the right path and they're moving in the right direction. And, and you know, I've, I, the, the whole the whole toxic uh, masculinity thing, which I saw kind of bouncing around the headlines for a bit. And I, I ended up writing an article about it. And look, if you take any characteristic of a human being, any of them, any characteristic of a human being and you take it to an absolute extreme, it's going to end up being a negative, whether that's someone that's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm competitive. Well, if you're hyper competitive, then you end up cheating and doing, stepping on people to get to the top. If you take someone that's, that's the, you know, the complete other end of the spectrum where they just want to give, well, there's people that ruin their lives because they, they, they give, 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 and, and people take advantage of them. So in any of you take any characteristic of a human and if you take it to an extreme it can become a a negative so i think that's what happened with some of the attitudes around toxic masculinity when they started saying well you shouldn't be aggressive or you shouldn't be assertive you know it's like well you know you you it's not that you shouldn't be aggressive. If you if you're not aggressive in life, things aren't going to happen for you. Things aren't just going to things aren't just going to occur because you want them to. You have to make them happen. Now, does this mean you should get over aggressive and hostile? Absolutely not. And I basically closed out this article by saying the 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 the, the, the traditional masculine values, when when put into play with the right amount of temperance on them, are very very positive. Not just for my one son. But for my three daughters as well, I want my three daughters to have those traditional masculine characteristics as well. And, and I think when, when it's thought of in that perspective, it becomes pretty easy to understand that. Yeah. And guess what? I want my son and my daughters to have the traditional feminine uh, characteristics as well. Hey, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to take care of other people. I'm going to put others first. Like those are, those are both of these are good. And what we have to do in life is we have to find balance. This is so cool that that comes across as your message, that from extreme situations, equilibrium has emerged, not been pulled into an extreme, but acknowledged the necessity for balance. That's very, very surprising. There's so many things I'd like to ask you about, mate, but I recognise I've taken up 75 minutes of your time and I've very much enjoyed it and I value it and I hope that I get the opportunity to speak with you again because it feels like a valuable conversation. Thank you. Absolutely, man. Let me know when you're in uh, Los Angeles. I just live down in San Diego. Maybe we can link up and, uh, you know, hang out. I would, I would enjoy that enormously. And I, I might try to set up some test situations for you so I can uh, observe your practices. That'd be awesome. I'd like to see that. <laughs> <laughs> Jocko, thank you, man. Thanks, man. Have a good one. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with me and Jocko Willink with uh, special dispensations and special contributions from Jennifer Mago Fingo. Mm. Well done, Jen. What did I do? Very little. <laughs> the less the better. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. 
tag me at Russell Brand or uh, at Rusty Rockets on Under the Skin. You can simply do a live show if you wanna. You can listen to Revelation if you wanna. That's on Audible. Above the noise, if you've subscribed and you have to Luminary, you can be. Uh, you could listen to my meditation, a weekly meditation. Let me know what you think of them. Let me know what you want. What kind of meditations you want me to do? Because we're doing sort of bespoke meditations for people now, aren't we? Yeah. I like doing that. And uh, <sighs> sign up to my uh, my community at russellbrand.com, and I'll keep you in touch with what's going on. And if you enjoyed this chat with Jocko then perhaps you'll like to listen to Ed Stafford and Bruce Parry because Ed Stafford, he's a dude that knows how to survive and Bruce Parry lives with tribes. So that's actually quite good there, Jane. Who counted those? I did. You sure? I do it every week. Colour, Yeah, but normally they don't make sense. Yeah, they do. Do they? You always think, what if they like that? What else would they yeah. like? Maybe I think different. <laughs> There's no question about that, Jenny, mate. There's no question about that. Right, keep listening to the, uh, the keep checking the YouTube channel, will ya? Because there's new stuff on there every day. We're creating so much content; it's driving me into the goddamn ground. Yeah. You're gonna burn out. No, what do I need a holiday? I can't keep doing these holidays with children. Well, then go away on your own. Where? Anyway. Just go somewhere. Come to lower stuff. Can I? If you want to. With what? You're putting me up in a room. Yeah. What's the house rules like? Um. Just tidy up. Yeah. Pretty casual at yours. Anyone else? Well, it's there? just me for a while. <laughs> yeah, Angela's moved back. Italian Angela's back. No, she's not Italian. She's Canadian. Canadian she, Angela. She might be able to make you a fancy outfit. What kind? She is a designer, clothes designer. She makes fancy outfits. Yeah, she's good at making cat suits. I don't think I should wear a cat suit, Jen. I've borrowed. No, but she makes suits now for Justin, like safari suits, like a matching top and bottom. And I like, think I would like a fancy outfit. Like a white outfit. Ooh. Yeah. Send some images. Okay. If you have time. Or maybe yeah. just lay out a pair of like a safari, a white safari suit on my single bed in the spare room. Okay. Come over to little Pebble Beach, Jenny May Finland. It's like I've set you up in an asylum. <laughs> <laughs> Tell you what, it's what's going to be needed. Because you can go out in the garden to the little bit where you look out at the sea and it's all secluded and you can just sit there. Oh, I'd love that. I'd just sit there quietly. Mm. I'll bring Bear. Okay. And the kids. No! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the boy. No, you're right, you're right. All right, Jenny. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Under the Skin. I love you. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> for listening